you bring up the subject of heaven on the street and at work, and you're going to get a dozen plus different opinions, aren't you? Best-selling books hawk their recent visions of heaven and their near-death experience tours of heaven that reveal a heaven that we can all too easily envision. Uh, Most of the stuff that comes out is a description that supports their own views. So you have a man who goes to heaven and sees a warehouse filled with legs and arms and all of that stuff that God is ready to send to people who have enough faith to ask for new legs or arms or hearts. Evidently forgetting that God has actually built into our bodies an aging process that will claim us all eventually, whether Barbara Walters believes it or not, right? And it happens to be the result of sin, for the wages of sin is death. The fall of the human race into sin is part of what causes us to to long for a full and final redemption. The world is aging, and it too is headed for complete and total redemption. Paul wrote, because of sin, all creation was subjected to futility. In other words, it isn't going to last forever. The whole creation has been groaning together, and not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 23. While we care for our bodies, and while we care for our world as good stewards, ultimately we do not need a new leg or a new heart. What every believer ultimately longs for is the redemption and glorification of our bodies and the new heaven and the new earth, which will be our eternal home where mortality puts on immortality, where weakness is raised in power, where dishonor is raised in glory, 1 Corinthians 15, 43 and 44. That's natural to be curious In fact, it's actually a good thing to be curious into this transition from mortality to immortality. The problem is most visions of heaven sound like a trip to a really nice resort or a family reunion. But open the scriptures and study the visions of Ezekiel and Daniel and hear John uh, the Apostle, and you end up with creatures too strange to describe. And the person of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, so bright, so colorful, so mysterious, so fearful, so terrifying that it bends way beyond our imagination. People want to know about eternity, and that is a good thing. People also want to know about God, eternal God. Take that one out on the street today, and you get a dozen plus different definitions. Talk about the person of Christ. Bring up the word spirituality. And then buckle your seat, Bell. I recently read about one man who supposedly toured heaven following a near-death experience on the operating table. He came back to life. Now he's able to channel the teachings of John, the apostle he calls John the Beloved. He believed that he had become the embodiment of a Christ-like power, ultimately teaching that we are the determiners of our fate and we create our own destiny. God is, is a force and you are in it which means you are God. God is you. 30 years ago, as I, in fact, I remember taking our little church, it meant the band room, 
at that point in time through a series on the new age and it was really just kind of fringe belief and people looked at me like that's really weird that anybody would ever you know run down a beach saying i am god i am god i am god however today is very different it's now mainstream isn't it today largely through the promotion of now years of celebrities and talk shows and positive thinking theology and preachers it is now in the mainstream so today phrases have become household terms like universal oneness divine consciousness holistic health the divine within human potential the basic theme is that you can speak or think your own destiny you create your own world whatever you want underlying it of course is the belief that you are ultimately sovereign the newest best-selling author is Rhonda Byrne, a woman who wrote The Secret, who writes, and I quote her, You are God in a physical body. You are spirit in the flesh, using all these biblical terminologies and convoluting them in her own false teaching. You are eternal life. You are all power, all wisdom, all intelligence, perfection, magnificence. You are the creator, and you are creating the creation of you on this planet. The earth turns on its orbit for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and sets for you. The stars come out for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. No matter what you thought you were, now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe, the heir to the kingdom, the perfection of life, and now you know the secret. That isn't a secret. That's a lie. That's a lie that goes all the way back to the garden where Satan said to Eve, wouldn't you like to be equal with God? This is just a repackaged lie of the serpent. I knew our friend Erwin Lutzer had preached recently on this subject. And I asked him if he'd send me his manuscript, which he kindly did. Among other things, he mentioned the law of attraction, which is being taught by guests, as well as promoted heavily by uh, people like Oprah Winfrey on her show, which has now become sort of a clearinghouse for spirituality in the new age. Uh, the law of attraction, by the way, is repackaged new age teaching, which states that your thoughts and your words send a message out to the universe, and the universe responds. Dr. Lutzer summarized in his sermon, the law of attraction teaches that your whole life has been created by you. You think it, and the universe responds to your thoughts. Your thoughts leverage the universe through people, circumstances, and events to fulfill your wish. So, make a command to the universe. Let the universe know what you want, and the universe will respond to your thoughts. The universe, I love this part, will rearrange itself to make it happen for you. In other words, you get exactly what you were thinking. I'm going to start thinking green lights, okay, from here on out. That'll be the test. No, you just, you really just get what you're thinking about. So make sure you think positive thoughts. As an aside, Dr. Lutzer said, why don't you explain that to Holocaust survivors? They got what they were thinking. They shouldn't have been thinking so negatively. They attracted what they deserved. Irwin's sermon, I read his manuscript provoked my interest and so I went on I went for myself onto Oprah's website spent an inordinate amount of time on there 
prominently displayed was her section entitled Spirit and Self. I read through the statements of guests on her program in that section. One of her guests said, It's almost as though the universe is listening to everything you say and everything you think. It says, oh, that's what they want. So how can the universe bring you anything good if you're not thinking good thoughts? If that's the way you're talking. She went on to say, that's why I teach people to love themselves, just to love and adore who they are. As a result of this woman's television show and personal influence, now tens of thousands of women, perhaps even in the millions, now have their own vision boards that they put up somewhere in the house or maybe on their refrigerator where they are communicating to the universe their thoughts and words for what they want out of life. Now, if you just stop and think about that for a moment, you recognize that a personal, sovereign God has been replaced by an impersonal universe. Right? The universe is the giver of gifts then and the sustainer of life. The Bible says every perfect gift comes down from the Father of light, James 1.17, not the universe. Furthermore, the law of attraction has given the universe divine attributes of omnipresence and omniscience and omnipotence. Has to. That's how the universe can hear your words and read your mind. It's omniscient. That's how the universe can, can read the thoughts of everyone on the planet at, at any time, at the same time. That's omnipresence. And then have the power to fulfill everyone's wish. That's omnipotence. Ultimately, then, the universe has replaced God. But even that doesn't work because the universe is really not a god. It's your puppet. And the secret allows you to pull the strings of the universe and you become the sovereign. It is your words and your thoughts that move the universe on your behalf. No wonder this religion is popular. It allows you to unashamedly love yourself, adore yourself, and then gives you the ability to demand your will be done and then it promises that the universe will be at your beck and call so that the universe will Fulfill your will, and your will will be done on earth. Listen to the perspective of a man who was given a tour of heaven and personally commissioned by the Lord to give us a little bit of it. Not much. In fact, he said he'd been withheld by the Spirit of God to tell us really anything. John will give us more detail. But listen to his perspective on life now that he has seen out there. He writes to the Corinthians, I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, so I teach them everywhere in every church. But I will, follow this, I will come to you, Corinthians, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. If it's the Lord's will, I'll come to you. James writes it this way. In fact, James seems to be rebuking what certainly isn't old and probably heard smatterings of this way back then. It sounds a lot like the law of attraction, what it's encouraging. Just speak and it will happen in your life. James writes this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make money. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, 
We will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. You want to get into that uh, kind of speaking if you want to speak the truth. If it's the Lord's will. If it's God's will, I will do that. This or that. In fact, James goes on to end that little paragraph by saying, As it is, those of you that say, I will do this and I will do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. The law of attraction, the belief that you can create or determine your future by your will and your words is, according to Scripture, arrogant, self-centered boasting. And arrogance and self-centeredness has always been and still is today evil. Listen, God does not do your bidding or mine. We do His bidding. The sovereign is not our servant. We are his servants. And he taught us even how to communicate with the Father by saying it this way, the wise will live with this kind of perspective. Lord, thy will be done as it is in heaven on earth. We live for your will. We want your words. We want your way. That's what we want. You are Lord, the sovereign ruler. Oh no, that's the wrong way to think. Rhonda Byrne writes and Oprah Winfrey and Marianne Williamson another false teacher and all the others who add their blessing to this promise and I quote again you are the master of the universe you are the heir to the kingdom you are the perfection of life you speak your future into being and now you know the secret dear flock beware and alert False religion really doesn't change all that much around the world. And in any generation, it just repackages itself with new terminology. But it ultimately ends by turning God into some mystical force. It depersonalizes God and it deifies man. It makes less of him and more of us. God is not a force. He's not energy. He's not a power. Some mystical, vaporous power. And we're part of it. In fact, we control it if we know the secret by our thoughts and our our words so that we can create our own reality and we can control our universe. Listen, and i got to finish this introduction here really quickly. (laughs) People intuitively know that there's something out there, right? There's something out there. There's, There's more than meets the eye. Everybody knows that, believer or unbeliever. We know that God has stamped In his creative work, eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11. We know it. People not only want to know about it, they want in on some secret about the future and what's going to happen and and, and how we can be on the best side of it and how we can manipulate it and how we can control it. Everybody wants to know the secrets of the future of the universe. And we've got it. We've got it. We, we actually have a secret scroll. You've got it in your lap. You don't have to go to the bookstore. Spend twenty nine ninety nine. You don't have to go on anybody's website. There it is. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to see the secret scroll revealed along with the person. The person. Note that. The person. Not a mystical force. Not a mystical consciousness but a person who will be able to open the scroll and sovereignly control the future of the planet who manages the universe. Revelation chapter 5. 
Verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now let's stop. Let's find out here as much as we can. In fact, this is so significant because it helps explain so many things. In the ancient world, going all the way back to the second century AD, literature was written on a scroll made of papyrus or leather. Leather was a little more expensive and required more work. Papyrus uh, produced, a, the inside was a pith, and they'd, they'd cut it out and they'd lay it in strips, and they'd lay it this way, and then they'd hammer it, and, and they'd roll it with a stone, and it would come out looking a lot like our current brown paper, coarse brown paper. You could make it any length you wanted by just adding more strips. God the Father is holding one of those. A scroll, the text tells us in verse 1, it is written on both sides. The message is full. And sealed with seven seals. Now there were two primary documents in the ancient world of John, and he would have immediately understood it, and his audience would have. We don't. Sealed with seven seals. One of these documents was a will. Last will and testament. A Roman will was sealed by seven witnesses, and each of the witnesses affixing his unique seal to the scroll. It couldn't be opened unless all seven witnesses or their representatives showed up. Otherwise, it stayed sealed. It was that significant. So in a way, the scroll here in Revelation chapter 5 is the will of triune God. It is His will. Sealed by the perfect witness of his sevenfold spirit. Listen, the future of the universe is not the will of puny people like you and me. And that's good news. All you heard today was that. That's good enough. It is not by the words of mortal flesh, no matter how much you love yourself and adore yourself. It is the will of God. In fact, the fact that the will of God here is written further implies that it is established. It's fixed. It's unchangeable. Even today, ladies and gentlemen, his future will for the universe is fixed by his sovereign power. I want to mention one more of the two typical scrolls that had seven seals. Not only were wills written in this form, but title deeds as well. In fact, in, in Jeremiah chapter 32, God told Jeremiah to go buy a piece of land and, and to buy it from, from the region of, of, of Benjamin, which was foolishness because Nebuchadnezzar at that moment had besieged Jerusalem. The land was worthless. He told Jeremiah, go buy a piece of it and that will be my symbol that we're coming back. That land will be given to my people. So Jeremiah goes and he, he puts out the 17 shekels of silver and, and he buys the land. Two scrolls, which was common in this day, were created. Uh, they produced the contract of the purchase. One scroll became public record, and it wasn't sealed. The other scroll was sealed with seven seals, put in a jar, kept, reserved in the temple until the day the owner could come back and reclaim that and redeem the land to himself. This is a wonderful and, and fitting analogy. 
Jesus Christ is receiving, as it were, the will of the Father representing the triune God. He's also receiving the title deed to creation. It's been kept safe, as it were, in the hand of of God. Adam's sin had lost it, as it were, to the curse and, and, and to Satan's dominion. But Christ redeemed creation at the cross, even when it was under siege by the enemy. And one day, Christ will call for the title deed, which he purchased with his blood, and he will claim rightful ownership of the land and all land. It belongs to him. He is the heir of all things. This is his will. This is his title deed. So only only someone with this kind of power can answer the challenge now delivered in verse 2. Notice, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? I mean, who has this kind of authority? Who was the witness? Don't read ahead. Who was the witness to the original document? Who knows the will of God? Who has the power to fulfill the content? tense of of this contract and reclaim the sieged earth. So they begin a search, verse three. They they start among all the redeemed. Both Old and New Testament saints, it, it then races down through humanity living on earth. It even goes to the depths of Hades, and the answer comes back No one is worthy. No one. No one is capable. Now think for a moment. Imagine that. Slip into the sandals of John. Abraham. He's not worthy. He's silent. So is Isaac. And Jacob. David. King David. Unworthy. Silent. Unmoving. How about Joseph? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, unworthy. So was evidently the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. They remained silent. Martin Luther remained silent, as does Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon. Hudson Taylor. Well, if you want to believe, which I don't believe, but if you want to believe, like the universalist that everybody's in, well, then would you notice that Muhammad is silent and Confucius and Buddha and Joseph Smith and everyone else who's ever claimed to be a prophet? No one in heaven, on earth, in Hades. No one can speak for God. There is no one capable of knowing the mind and will of eternal God. There is no one who is heir to the planet. No one can claim ownership of the universe. No one powerful enough to reclaim a creation. No one could speak for God the Father whose spirit at this moment is blazing like seven torches and the throne of God is flashing with lightning, shaking the universe with thunder No one stepped forward. Now, would you notice in verse 2 that God the Father did not ask, Who is willing to open the scroll? Mm -mm. Who is worthy? 
and no one moved. And in verse 4, John the Apostle begins to weep. He bursts into tears and he weeps. Why is he weeping? Why is he dissolving in tears? Stop here for a moment. John MacArthur quoted in his commentary of this text the words of a man now with the Lord, W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Dallas, who eloquently wrote, John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve, driven out of the Garden of Eden, as they bowed over the first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the still form of their murdered son, Abel. These are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. These are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. These are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they experience trials and sufferings, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it. That usurper, that intruder, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan. John weeps for the failure to find one to open the scroll of our redeemed future this earth now consigned forever to death, it would mean that death, sin, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever, and God's earth shall remain forever in the hands of Satan. No wonder John dissolves into loud weeping. See, John is ushered into the future, and there's no one to bring about final redemption. There's no one to administer the will of the Father on earth. There's no one from Adam's ruined race, the billions that have lived for all time, not a man or a woman from all of the billions who've lived on earth, not one fit, worthy to reclaim the universe. No one can conquer evil. No one can usher in the future kingdom. No one can deliver heaven and, and earth and and, and clothe mortals with immortality. No one. And he's struck with that. Ladies and gentlemen, the law of attraction might be attractive to the human heart, but it is short-lived. According to the secrets of this divine inspired scroll, there is no one who can manage and manipulate, direct, order, suggest, or, or entice or even wish the universe into doing their will. There's no one. No one steps forward. No one. But then there's one. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, look, look. He missed it earlier, John. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These are messianic titles. One more clear sign that Israel is coming back to the center stage as the tribulation is about to unfold. Now just who is the one worthy to open the secrets of the scroll? He gives us five clues. Number one, the one worthy is called a lion. This references his majesty. He is the majestic and fearful lion, and his roar is terrible, and it will cause the hearts of mankind to melt with fear the world over. Wonderfully portrayed by C.S. Lewis in his Tales of Narnia, as the beavers are describing to the children who've come in through that mysterious amour. They're referred to by all of the speaking animals of this world as the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Wonderful analogy to, to children on earth. And they are describing to these children Aslan, who illustrates Christ. Listen in. As the beavers described Aslan to the children, Susan says, Is he safe? I, will, I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. The one worthy to take the scroll and reveal its secrets is a lion, which speaks of his majesty. Secondly, the text tells us that this worthy one is from a tribe. He's a lion, which speaks of his majesty. He's from a tribe, which speaks of his humanity. He was born on earth. He, he was a little baby boy. He grew up 100% human, a member of the tribe of people. Humans. He will have half brothers and half sisters. Matthew thirteen fifty five says Mary and Joseph had several more children. He he was in a he was in a family, he belonged to a, a tribe of people. He didn't go around with a halo visible. He was a, a normal, ordinary looking Jewish man, so ordinary that when he finally announced that he was the great I am, everybody looked at him and said, You, God? There's no way. In fact, at one point in time, his half-brothers came to take him away, thinking he had lost his mind. Third, the text tells us that he is specifically from the tribe of Judah. This gives us his nationality. These clues are all adding up. I know who you, you know who it is, but don't raise your hand. Okay, Just stay along for the ride. The term Jew is, is phonetically derived from Judah. It's from the tribe of Judah. We learn in Genesis 49 verse 10 that the Messiah will come. The text tells us that the worthy one is called also the root of David. This is a reference to his royalty. He is the descendant of David... And so the genealogies of the Messiah must prove he descended from David physically in order to physically claim the physical, literal throne of David in a physical place called the New Jerusalem. That's why Matthew, writing primarily to Jewish people, began with what? 
It's that part you skip as you read through the New Testament. The what? The genealogy. He has to prove that Christ is related to David. The title, Son of David, is a messianic title used frequently in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. So John hears these descriptions that reveal the worthy one's majesty, his humanity, his nationality, his royalty, and one more, his deity. The root of David can also refer to his preexistence. You can understand the idea of the root of David communicating two truths. He's the offspring of David, and he is the predecessor of David. He who came after David was the son of David. He who existed before David is the root of David. Think of it this way. As far as his humanity is concerned, he had his roots in David. As far as his deity is concerned, he is the root of David. Both are emphasized, by the way, at the end of the book in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, where Christ calls himself, I am the root and also the descendant of David. Okay, so who is it? It's the only person who could be both fully human and fully God. It's the only person born on the planet as a, as a Jew to a tribe and family of David who could also be a predecessor at the same time of David. The one who could say to that audience as he established his claim, before Abraham was born, I am the pre-existent one, also born in time and space as a Jewish boy belonging to a family and to a tribe. This is the one, the only one. It is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. John makes four observations about this sovereign Lord. Notice verse 6. And between uh, the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, then I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb standing. That's the first observation. The lamb is standing. He's risen to take the scroll and begin directing the machinery of wrath that will pour out upon the whole world. John's second observation is that the lamb has suffered. He writes in verse 6, he looked like he had been, what, slain. This is a reference to the fact that, that Christ still bore the scars of his crucifixion. Frankly, we don't know how many of the scars. We do know his hands inside because he invited Thomas, you remember? In that post-resurrection appearance, Thomas had doubted and, and the Lord said to him, Look, see here. We know he has those. He may have more may have kept the prince in his brow. But it's obvious that he has been wounded severely. In fact, slain. Now standing as the ascended Lord at the right hand of the Father, signifying, by the way, equal authority with the Father, Christ is seen as the Lamb who was slain. I, I, I bumped into this story in my, in my research. A Sunday school teacher once asked her children what she thought would, would be a trick question. She was going to catch him, and she taught them a little bit about heaven. Only she was the one left speechless. She asked her class, Children, is there anything man-made in heaven? And to her surprise, one of the young boys spoke up and said, Yes, ma'am, there is. 
And she said, oh, oh well. Uh, now, now, what could possibly be in heaven that is man-made? To which the young child responded, the nail prints in Jesus' hands. Yeah, I thought about that a while. It's true. The lamb has suffered for the ones he will save. The lamb that suffered and stands is also supreme. John sees him further in this text with seven horns, symbol of perfect and complete power. Seven meaning he is supremely powerful. It's interesting that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, those 400 years of silence when the Maccabees revolted and the great Jewish heroes fought for their liberation, it's interesting to discover that their banner was a lamb with horns. The lamb will ultimately liberate his people. He has suffered. He is standing. He is supreme. Furthermore, he has seven eyes. John sees, which are the seven spirits of God. This is a picture of sovereign omniscience. I, I believe personally that he literally did look like a lamb. He did have seven eyes. He did have seven horns. They have figurative meaning. In fact, I think they're going to disappear because very quickly here, his figure is going to change and he's going to reach out and take with a hand the scroll. But this picture here is wonderful. He is omniscient. He sees everything. You can put it this way. You cannot... Pull the wool over this lamb's eyes. He knows everything and sees. He doesn't miss anything. Now notice the climax of this scene in verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He took the scroll. We can't even imagine the ceremony and the significance in that awesome moment. The word took is intensive perfect. It emphasizes the permanence of his grip. This is his scroll. It is his abiding possession. Roman reliefs from the ancient days show emperors holding scrolls as a symbol of their power and their authority and handing the scroll to another signified what is signified here that the father is transferring the authority and power to God the son is the lamb who is about to unleash upon earth the wrath is fully in control it is the future of the universe at his beck and call so stop weeping john you don't need to you don't need to weep you can start singing no wonder the redeemed and the hosts of heaven sing one of the great hymns of heaven. We're going to look at it carefully because we've got to get to the end here. So we'll look at it more carefully, but at least look at the lyrics again. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. They're singing to Christ. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall, they shall, they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb. John dries his tears. The Lamb is the leader. The Sovereign is the Savior. Not a mystical spirit, but a person who bears scars as symbols forever of His love and grace. God is not you. He's not me. Isn't that good news? 
Here's, I mean, you, you can adore yourself all you want. Send messages to the universe all you want. Look in the mirror this morning and I say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And you're God, you're God. And then realize you've got to shave. <laughs> Brush your teeth. I rode behind a vehicle driven by a woman this past week. And on the back of her car was a sticker that read, Goddess at Work. Twenty years ago, that would have been an attempt at humor. Today, that woman is probably dead. Serious. In Erwin Lutzer's manuscript, he referenced a woman in his church who had become a Christian. She was a university professor nearby. She'd studied religions, all kinds, along with the current New Age beliefs. She, by the grace of God, came to understand and recognize the truth of the gospel. She made the comment that she recognized as well that all the other religions in the world basically told her she was a god. Christianity told her she was a sinner. But that's part of the good news. She said, Christianity offered me the truth of who I was and forgiveness for the sins I knew I committed. Ladies and gentlemen, the best-selling book, The Secret, along with it, The Laws of Attraction, will ultimately lead to despair because we can't satisfy ourselves. We cannot. What's more, all those who follow it will one day come to terms with their own insufficiency, either on their deathbed or on their sickbed, or even more tragically, in standing before the one we've sung of was holy. Holy, holy. The tragedy for them is multiplied now through life, and we're here to deliver the gospel to our world. For if we are gods, there is no one to guide us. If, if, if we are sovereign, there is no one who can save us. If we're part of a force, there's no one who can forgive us. But here's the true secret as the scroll is about to be unfurled. The Lamb is sovereign. The Lion of Judah is the pre-existent creator of the past and the sovereign Lord of the future. And He is willing to become your Savior and mine. Father, Thank you for delivering to us this scene that causes us to rejoice. What this does for the believer, Lord, is exactly what it does for them. We can sing of our redemption. We are forgiven. My friend, if, if you don't know this sovereign lion lamb as your Lord. And you know enough of the gospel? I exhort you to bow your knee to him now. Don't go another moment. Give him your sinfulness. 
descend from the throne of your own making and acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior alone. For those of you that know Christ, I hope you go through the day singing that we are on the right side of eternity. Oh, praise God. We have found the one who came, in fact, to do the seeking and the saving of those who are lost.